Well, we are in our uh, second week of our sermon series on the book of Romans. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome around 56 AD. Now, he had never been to Rome. He had tried to visit them, but his plans had not worked out, and so he announces his plans to visit. But first, he has to go to Jerusalem to take care of some business. The, the church in Rome is primarily made up of Gentiles. Now, a Gentile is anyone who is not, a, not Jewish. But there are Jewish uh, converts to Christianity in the church as well, and Paul will address both of these groups in his letter. But in verses 16 and 17, Paul tells his readers the basic, the core message of this letter, and it is this. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That last phrase Paul quotes from the book of Habakkuk. This word righteousness is the core message of Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, he will use this word more than 30 times, more than any other book in the New Testament. And he'll spend a number of chapters explaining how it factors in to our relationship with God. So what does it mean? What does it mean to be righteous before God? Basically, it means to simply be in right standing. So why are we not in right standing? Well, in chapter 1, last week, Paul describes the condition of the human race. And it's not pretty. In fact, I, I'm very glad that Pastor Mark and, and Matt preached last week and not me. But Paul sums it all up in verse 20. He says, we are without excuse. Now that makes us uncomfortable. That makes it sound like we violated God's will on purpose. That we knew it was wrong and we did it anyway. See, I think we are much more comfortable with saying, I made a mistake, right? Uh, Andy Stanley says there is a, a big difference between a mistake and a sin. Uh, a mistake is just faulty reasoning. I wasn't thinking straight. I was careless. I, I didn't see that. I didn't know better. And this is a much better word because I don't feel so bad about myself. If I get caught, we say, ah, my bad. I made a mistake. Is that the end of the world? Hey, nobody is perfect after all. You can't be that mad at me. It was just a mistake. I, I didn't know better. But the truth is when the lights, the music, and the television are off, when you are looking at yourself in the mirror, you know better. <laughs> you know it was intentional. I've done that more times than I can count. Convince myself and others that it was an accident. And I didn't mean to do it. And then later, in a time of quiet introspection, I had to admit it and get honest with myself. Yes, I knew what I was doing. You ever done that? You did it on purpose. You just didn't think you'd get caught. And not only did you do it on purpose, but you've done it before. And not only have you done it before, but you are hoping you can do it again. 
And when somebody brings it to your attention, you were able to pass it off. But you know in your heart that what you did was more than a mistake, that it was intentional. It wasn't because of poor reasoning and wasn't carelessness. It wasn't insufficient knowledge. You knew exactly what you were doing. It wasn't a mistake at all. It was way, way deeper than that, wasn't it? And what about guilt? I mean, nobody needs to feel guilty about a mistake, right? (laughs) I mean, a mistake is a mistake. You didn't mean to. You didn't have the information. You weren't old enough. You weren't mature enough. You don't feel guilty for a mistake. And that's what his Jewish readers would have been thinking. They would have been thinking something like, you know what, I'm so glad I'm not like these really bad Gentiles. I'm a righteous person. I mean, I follow all the laws and rules in in the Bible. But Paul says, really? (laughs) In verse 9, he writes, There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. And then Paul goes on to drive home the point. He says, if you're brought up Jewish, don't assume that you can lean back in the arms of your, your religion and take it easy, feeling smug because you're an insider to God's revelation, a connoisseur of the best things of God, informed of the latest doctrines. Paul goes on, he says, I have a special word of caution for you who are so sure you have it together yourselves and because you know God's revealed word inside and out. You feel qualified to guide others through their blind alleys and dark nights and confused emotions to God. While you are guiding others, who's going to guide you? Paul says, I'm quite serious. While preaching don't steal, are you going to rob people blind? Who would suspect you? The same with adultery, the same with idolatry. You can get by with almost anything if you front it with eloquent talk about God and His law. The line from Scripture, it's because of you Jews that the outsiders are down on God, shows an old problem that isn't going to go away. You remember Jesus saying in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now folks, those words must have hit them like a brick on the head. You see, the Pharisees were known for their strict interpretation and keeping of the laws of their religion. And they wanted to make sure that everybody else followed exactly the way they thought it ought to be followed. And if you did, you were righteous. And if you didn't, you were a sinner. So the non-Pharisees were thinking to themselves, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. If I have to be more righteous than a Pharisee, I don't stand a chance of of entering the kingdom of heaven. I'm toast. And you would think that Jesus, being kind and understanding, would would lower the bar. Hey, don't worry about all those religious rules and regulations. Just try to be nice and you'll be okay. But Jesus actually raises the bar. He says to them, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've actually come to fulfill them. He actually made people feel worse about themselves. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. He says it about anger and lust and and marriage and swearing oaths and loving your enemies. And then he ends with these words, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And everybody's going, wow, I'm in big trouble. How in the world am I ever going to be perfect? 
Jesus pushed the bar way up high. And he says to them, it's way, way worse than you thought. You thought you were kind of bad? No, you are really bad. You thought you were fulfilling all the requirements of the law? You're not even close. You thought you were righteous? You're not a righteous person. Nobody is good enough to stand in God's favor. And just when everybody would have been ready to give up all hope, Jesus says, oh yeah, by the way, God loves you. And God loves you just the way you are. Now how confusing is that? (laughs) Either I am absolutely terrible or God loves me. Can it be both? Yes. You are worse than you thought. And God loves you more than you can imagine. Now, folks, this angered the religious rule followers, the Pharisees. All this effort, and Jesus says it doesn't matter. But the people, the everyday people, knew in their gut they were sinners. They loved him because they were honest enough to look in the mirror and say, Jesus is right. I am worse than I thought. And if there's any hope in the world for me, it's not because I'm going to do better, promise harder, commit deeper, or discipline myself. If there's any hope for me, a sinner, it's not going to be through my efforts. I need a Savior. And Paul sums it all up in Romans 3.21. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, folks, we all fall short of the standard of God. We all fall short of the righteousness of God. And you would expect the next verse to say something like, and boy, is God mad at you. God is going to make you pay. You're going to see lightning bolts, my friend. There are lightning bolts in your future. But Paul says, nope. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Folks, this is huge. This is why the the letter to the Romans is so important for us to understand. You see, as long as I'm making mistakes, I can make up for them. But when it becomes sin, I know there's a debt that I owe. I know there's a restoration of a broken relationship that needs to be made. I know that there is some kind of sacrifice that I need to make. I know there is something that I've got to do. And Paul says, and here is the good news, that all have sinned, and yet all have been made right with God, and it's free. Wait a minute, don't I owe something? Yes, but that debt's been paid. But what can I do to make it up to you? You don't have to do anything. But God, I'm finally reconciled with the fact that I'm a sinner. It's not just mistakes, it's sin. What do I need to do? God, I owe you so much. 
Yep. You owed me so much that you could not pay it yourself. So I had somebody else pay it for you. And for you, it's free. Now listen to the rest of the verse. Freely by His grace, through redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. Now that would have sounded strange to the the Gentile readers in Rome. What, What is this redemption? What is this sacrifice of atonement? What is this shedding of blood about? Now the Jewish readers would have known exactly that Paul was using language from the Jewish temple ritual. How on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would have taken some of the blood into the Holy of Holies in the temple and sprinkled it there on the mercy seat. And the shedding of blood would have reminded the people that the penalty for sin is death. So the writer of Hebrews would look back upon this and say, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the apostle Paul looked upon this and he saw Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. You see, it's the idea that Jesus substituted himself in our place, that he suffered, that he died to pay the penalty for our sins because we couldn't do it. Now, the self-righteous thought that they were going to figure this out on their own. We're going to do better. We're going to convince God that our good outweighs our bad. We're going to pay back our our debt to society. We're going to break that bad habit. We're going to break that addiction. That The self-righteous are all about trusting in themselves to get it right. Sinners realize they can't. I don't need to do better. I don't need a motivational speaker. I don't need a cheerleader. I need a Savior. And you become a Christian... The moment you recognize this truth, I sin, not make mistakes. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Jesus came to be my Savior. Verse 22 says, This righteousness, this right standing before God, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul is saying that Jesus has done it all, but you and I, we have a part to play. We need to believe. We need to transfer our confidence and our trust from ourselves to figure this out. I'm not going to figure this out and, and get it right. We need to put that on Jesus Christ, my Savior. We're saying I'm placing all of my weight, all of my trust on what you did on my behalf. You see, as a sinner, I realize there's nothing I can do to pay for my sins. Paul says in verse 27, where then is boasting is excluded. Folks, there's nothing for us to boast about. Jesus paid it all. And even if I got this right from this day forward, there's no way to go back and make up for what I've done wrong. And what I did was not simply make mistakes. I've sinned, and now I'm placing all of my faith and all of my trust in what Christ did on my behalf. I believe that when he died on the cross, he died for me. Well, now in chapter 4, Paul seems like he's veering off on a tangent, but he's not. He wants his Jewish readers to understand that this faith thing isn't something new. 
That salvation meant pleasing God by doing all the works of the law of Moses. But suddenly God has changed the rules and now it's faith. And to prove this to them, he goes all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 15. To a story about Abraham. God told Abraham to leave his home and to head out to a new one. God told Abraham that he and Sarah were going to become parents of a nation and that all the earth would be blessed through him. The problem, of course, was that Abraham and Sarah were pretty old and they didn't have a child. And so this being a great nation seemed pretty much of a stretch to Abraham. And so in Genesis 15, Abraham is lamenting to God that he and Sarah are are childless. And he says, God... How will your promise to make me into a nation ever come true? And God takes Abraham outside on a clear night. He shows him all the stars. He says, Abraham, look up at the sky and count the stars. Oh, God, I can't do that. There are millions and millions of stars. There are way far too many. And God says, I know, Abraham, you are going to have so many descendants that like those stars, you're never going to be able to count them. And even though it seemed impossible, even though it would take a miracle, Abraham chose to believe the Lord. And the Bible says that God credited to him as righteousness. And then Paul asks his readers a rhetorical question around the idea of circumcision. Now, that may sound weird to our modern ears, but it was a big deal to Paul and his Jewish readers because circumcision was the sign that you were a part of the covenant people of God, that you were truly Jewish. And so Paul asked them this question. So when did this happen in Abraham's life? Was it before or after his circumcision? And Paul answers his own question. He says, before And so he says, therefore, to his Jewish readers, his circumcision wasn't the cause of his right standing before God. It was because he chose to believe God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then he ends by saying, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, folks, this did not make Paul very popular in the synagogues. And it almost got him killed on several occasions, but he would not back down. You see, this was so central to his understanding of of how God makes us righteous that he was willing to die for it. And that's how critically important it is for you and I to understand as well. Until you grasp what Paul is saying here, you cannot understand the core of the Christian faith. And he ends chapter 4 by saying the words, it was credit to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, that he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Jesus, the perfect man, dies for us to pay for our sin and in turn gives us as a gift his perfect righteousness. He doesn't let us skate. He doesn't let us just slip by. He gives us the free gift of grace. And the fruit of that, he says, is peace with God. 
Now the church forgets this from time to time. I forget it from time to time. We start thinking that the righteous will live by their own righteousness. You see, God used this passage from Romans to bring spiritual renewal over and over again. Martin Luther read it and revived his spiritual life and he started the Protestant Reformation. John Wesley heard it read one night and it revitalized his spiritual life and he started the Methodist Revival. And it can do the same for you. The sooner we embrace the fact that we can't earn our right standing before God, that we are sinners and not mistakers, the sooner we are able to engage in God's grace towards us. The sooner we'll be able to experience His forgiveness and grace, the sooner we'll be able to engage in a personal relationship with our Savior. Jesus did it all. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.